Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, doctoral student in psychology. And with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, professor of English and philosophy. Space is a vast canvas, blank, except for the random sprinkling of stars. Yet if we look up in the sky, we can find familiar shapes. Constellations that our ancestors believe affected our lives in some way. Now we know better. Each star in a constellation is immeasurably far away from one another and moving in different directions. Humans as self-conscious beings have an interesting quirk. We're so smart that sometimes we see stars and think we know more than there is to know. And other times we look at the vast emptiness of space and question whether there's anything to know at all. Today, we're looking at epistemology. Well, there you go with the metaphor again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to sneak them in. So, um, yeah, epistemology, continuing on our little series here, looking at the pillars of philosophy or the core elements of it, um, working our way up from things that are um, sort, of, sort of personal into more general and more... Um, encompassing and vast. Mm -hmm. So, um, epistemology, what is it? It's a cluster of things that are related. It, uh, to start at the root, uh, episteme or episteme means uh, knowledge. So, epistemology is uh, a theory or sets of theories about how we, uh, it concerns itself with how we think we have knowledge. Um, what, what 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 are the presuppositions of knowledge? What are the what's the basis of for saying that we know something? Uh, it, and uh, how reliable is it? And how can we determine the reliability? And so it's a, it's really a set of wonderful questions. Hmm. Uh, all about all about that idea of of trying to find. Uh, justified true belief. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure that uh, a lot of listeners are already seeing how this can be a sticky situation, right? How do you know that you know something? And to add on to that, there's even a field of meta-epistemology, which is, what <laughs> yes. do you think about how you think about how you know something? <laughs> so, um, so, when we think about this, one of the other pillars of philosophy is logic, right? How do we differentiate between the philosophical notions of epistemology and, and logic? One of the ways is that, and it's good that you, you brought that up because it has connections to others of the pillars too, but one of the ways is to, to come to recognize that logic and uh, not rationality, but logic in the purest sense is not the only way that we come to knowledge. It's not necessarily a requirement or a, a first principle of all acquisition of knowledge. Yeah, because um, as I was, we were talking about before the episode, I'm taking um, advanced statistics now for my PhD program, yeah. right? So yeah. they, they yeah. cover this in, in the, the um, introduction to it. They talk about you know, you can have an argument that's logical and it can still be wrong, right? Logic doesn't imply rightness or knowing something. It's just um, uh, something that's put in place that makes sure that arguments make sense. So, making sense and being 
true or untrue or wrong or right or having a knowledge um logic is actually separate from that right it, well it can be yeah or or secondary to it it can uh, it can be separate it can be it can be subsidiary uh, the, the, think about the, the idea of using your senses to know things well you can't know everything with your senses too and then there's a, a priori and and you know the mm -hmm. different kinds of do i have direct knowledge or do i have indirect knowledge yeah and, and so i can ostensibly say that i know that i see a cup of water that you've left for me but i know that it's i think i know that it's water because it always has been water but if i took a sip because i can't see the water there I might have found cocoa, although it's unlikely it would have been cocoa because the cup is seemingly plastic and so probably wouldn't hold a hot drink. Okay, but that whole process that I'm just doing, as goofy as it sounds, is epistemic. It is the working one's way toward, I like to think of it as accuracy. Right. Yeah, you know, because, because we live in a time when, when truth and and false truth are things that are tossed around a, a lot. And people like to think they have the truth. Well, how about if we think we, about accuracy? Hmm. The more we can be accurate, the fewer mistakes we might make. But accuracy requires a capacity to consider yourself inaccurate or wrong <laughs> and therefore able to be schooled into uh, through experience, through format, formal training and whatever to seek, to want to seek what's most accurate. Right. Yeah. So looking at, at, at logic and epistemology, um, going back to uh, statistics, right? Um, another thing that is when you're designing studies, right? There's um, reliability and validity. Mm -hmm. So, you can have something that uh, a test that's reliable but not valid, but if something's valid, it's reliable. And so the way that that, that works in in terms of of logic and epistemology is the sort of thing. The example they used in in the book that I really liked was um, if you had a theory of intelligence that said the bigger head you have, the more intelligence you are, the more intelligent you are, and you measured the circumference of people's heads in order to determine their intelligence, is that a reliable test? Most people shout, no, it's not, yeah. but actually it is um, because the test is reliable because it measures the same thing each time. It measures the same thing. And so the test is reliable. It says, okay, well, if we measure somebody's head, we can say what their intelligence is, but it's not a valid measure because measuring their head doesn't measure their intelligence. Exactly. exactly. So logic is kind of the same way, right? It you is. can have a logical premise. You can build a logical argument. And that does provide something important. It's a reliable measure of what you're arguing. If the argument is... is but the validity of the argument can, can come about. It's not separate from logic. The argument it's not is separate well, from logic, but there's other things that go into knowing. Exactly, because logic, logic oh, you want to boil it right down. Logic is the process of making arguments and the process of determining whether those arguments are valid. So really, it's it's a two twofold concern, but it's very narrow. Hmm. If P, then Q. P, therefore Q. If P, then Q. Q, therefore P. They aren't the same thing. They sound it. They're models. Yeah. One works. 
one doesn't. And, and the, and, and so logic is part of coming to understand how uh, an argument is framed, uh, the scaffolding upon which it is built, what is left out or assumed. And, and so that's why, what makes it important, but narrow. Yeah. And it's, it's an important part of philosophy and, and we don't talk about it explicitly in a lot of our episodes. This one will be a little bit, a little bit more, I'm, I'm not going to say academic, but we'll dive into the terms and, and sort of dissect how people do philosophy in this episode. Um, because it's very important, right? The difference between you and me um, sitting here and just spouting random opinions versus doing philosophy is following these processes. There's, it is. It, it's a mathematical equation, right? Like you were saying, if P you know, equals Q or if all Qs are Ps and this and that or you know, going backwards and, and Do tracing. I truly know that that's water over there in that container? <laughs> it's water. Right. Of course it is. And you, you might say, nope, nope, it's not. Well, how do you know that? Because I'm the one that put it there. All right. And we can get into that. Well, what did you put in my cup? And right. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. That's not the same process as step-by-step step, uh, calmly. <laughs> yeah. And so we'll see. Um, and, and, and we also will get into what separates philosophy from science, right? Is um, science goes through the same process that philosophy does, um, but you have not things that you can prove. Because science, science doesn't prove things, which is a misconception. But you you come to conclusions. You can establish cause and effect in these sorts of things. Whereas philosophy and and specifically epistemology, we'll see you're looking at even bigger issues that you really can't come to um, have that sort of knowledge with. So you're following the processes and seeing where they take you. Um, but things are never as certain in philosophy as they are in science. Can I take a step sideways into another pillar? Yeah. Since you brought this up, because I, I think that this is a way of connecting all of this. So there are parallels between uh, epistemology, the, the theory of knowledge, and ethics. Hmm. Because both ask very similar kinds of questions. And uh, uh, both are about broad, not even broad, universal generalizations, things on the biggest scale, really. Uh, Kant was looking for the categorical imperative, and and uh, and epistemology looks for the things which can be known across humanity, for mm. instance. Uh, so, so and, and, and if the parallel is like this. If in ethics, uh, uh, if it is morally wrong for a person to take an action, and they do so anyway, we uh, sometimes say they are morally blameworthy or there's a character fault of some kind. If a person has a good reason for believing something, now we're into the epistemology, the first was ethics, for believing a statement, but the person doesn't, then uh, in the absence of any good excuse, we say there is a fault in the person's intellectual capacities. Yeah, so that's the logic and epistemology thing as well, right? There's so where they're it, all braiding. Yes. Right. So epistemologically, even if, or you know, if you come to the correct conclusion, but you didn't use a logical framework to get there, then um, you really didn't do you didn't philosophize correctly. Yeah. Right. Also, <laughs> the, the the thing that epistemology and ethics have in common is that neither neither a print a principle of either one can't be 
confirmed by the senses. Hmm. Can't can't uh, you know you can't ha- make an observation and say, "Yep, that was the right moral decision," or "Nope, that wasn't." Right? Yeah. <laughs> People say that all the time, but observationally, there's no evidentiary material that. that yeah, and this ties into what we were talking about last time yes. with um, with ethics about you know if you say that something is right, there's several different types of right, and you could use the same language in epistemology and ethics. Well, what is right and what is wrong? But they're different types of right and wrong, right? Yeah. But it's still it's still all in there. Right. So let's dive into it a little bit. What can you tell us about propositional, procedural, procedural, equi- you know, acquaintance, knowledge, <laughs> some of these different types? They're well, they to me the the, the commonality is, is in doing the meta thing really and and examining the approach one is taking i mean that i think that's the simplest terms that i that I would use for it how are we approaching figuring it out figuring out what the facts are how are we approaching figuring out what knowledge is and we've already just you know we're we're talking about similar things here but but you can do a very logical, rational, uh, progressional step-by-step approach, which is often done in education, but I gather it's also done in manufacturing. You can have a, an aha moment, an intuitive uh, approach that would caution you against going a direction that you might not have been going. I'm going to use goofy examples because that's what my head is full of being a grandpa, okay? So, <laughs> so, uh, this week, I was uh, had the great joy of, of revisiting a, a Disney film called Hercules, <laughs> and and uh, bits and pieces seen the whole thing in the week, but certainly not one straight run through because we do lots of other things besides watching movies. But in the quintessential moment when the the character of Hades has released the Titans and they're marching across the landscape saying Zeus, Zeus, because they want to kill the king of the gods. And Hades says, "Uh, um, nice thought. Turns out Olympus is the opposite direction because they're marching away from, so the Titans turn around and they start marching. Okay. There was epistemology going on there. (laughs) because there had to be a course correction because somebody realized that a bunch of others were not going in the direction that they should be. Hmm. Yeah. And again, this, I'm, I'm going to bring it back to my statistics homework again. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, They talk about types of knowledge. Right. And so at the lowest level, and I'll compare this to, to my work. Right. So you have superstition which is the lowest level, which is essentially saying, well, I know this machine's going to screw up because it's Monday, right? Then you have intuition, which is, you know, your gut. So if I'm thinking, well, it's a really hot day in here, so I think this press is going to overheat, but I don't have anything to play into it. Then there's knowledge through authority, you know, as if, well, I think that this machine's going to screw up because my engineer says that, you know, this part hasn't been replaced and it needs to. And then there's experimental knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Which is we did did just recently. We had we had a problem. And so we ran an experiment where we took multiple types of, of different rods that we put in the machine and we 
gave a different treatment to each one. Then we put each one through the machine to see which one bonded correctly. And we found out, oh, well, this is what we need to do to get this thing to process correctly. And then we went through it. So those are all different sources of knowledge. And and some of those kind of fit into this this, um, idea of propositional and, and procedural and, and acquaintance yeah, epistemology. Yeah. Right. This is, these are methods. You were talking about methods. Reliability is something that one, as you mentioned earlier, seeks. But is the knowledge reliable? Because otherwise, what use does it, what utility does it have? Hmm. Now, that doesn't mean it's not knowledge, but what, but there's a level of importance. Knowledge that is just interesting, a knowledge that has immediate applicability, and for some people, it's only the applicability or utility. But for others of us, it's, wow, that's really interesting in and of itself. The fact that a red star going supernova, essentially more or less in front of our eyes, which you and I talked about uh, last week too, uh, in a galaxy far, far away, It's fascinating what they found out about it. Is that going to affect my week in the sense of anything that I particularly do? Not on the ground level of of Maslow's hierarchy, probably. But it is interesting, and it might cause me to rethink something else. And so knowledge can have a strange kind of uh, intuitive utility not just step by step, but you're studying education and education. We know part of the, part of the reliability is to track the steps. And you did that with, with the manufacturing. Yeah. And so, and you know, it's different ways of, of arriving at knowledge and, and they go into saying how, you know, though there's a hierarchy of knowledge, right? Now, it doesn't mean that you can't arrive at knowledge through superstition, right? Because if I say, well, it's Monday, so that machine's going to break. If that machine reliably does break on Mondays, well, that's knowledge through superstition. And there's a good chance that you can dig deeper and find a reasonable explanation. Yeah, it's not a well, causal thing yeah. because Monday happens. Well, it's probably because it's been sitting all weekend. And so something is is happening in the machine when it's not being run for two days that causes it not to start, right? Or... um you know, knowledge, knowledge through intuition, you know, there's a good chance that, well, I've been doing this for seven years. So if I think it's too hot, there's a good chance it's probably too hot. Yep. Knowledge yep. through authority, right? Um, it, well, this engineer has been doing this for 42 years. So if, if he thinks it's going to break and it does break, then he was an authoritative source. But if he tells me a bunch of things and then they don't come to pass, then maybe he's not, you know, maybe or maybe he has some gaps in his knowledge or whatever the case may be. Experimental knowledge, that's the gold standard, because really, if you're if you're running an experiment, you know, if you have an independent variable and a control variable and a dependent variable and you've out, you know, you've isolated a lot of the extraneous or confounding variables, that's about as accurate as you can as you can get. So that's sort of that's sort of the gold standard, and these are all um, different ways of arriving at knowledge. So we, you mentioned it before, and we've talked about it extensively in a couple episodes, but we'll we'll hit on it again. Um, tell us about a priori and a posteriori knowledge that you gain through experience or knowledge that you can only have through the uh, 
measurements and thoughts and so on of others, or in fact, that you think lingers, uh, from the beginning of time. <laughs> That's, so it's, it's, it's knowledge that is, is how you access the knowledge. And do you have direct access or indirect access? Right. So, so a posteriori is knowledge that you essentially come by through your senses, right? Yeah. And then a, a priori knowledge is any knowledge that you come through, come by not through your senses. Right. Whether it's by assumption, uh, by having it handed down, uh, by, uh, and it even can involve in, in some sense trusting what others have does the eiffel tower exist in paris right well if i've never gone to paris and i haven't seen it uh, you know do, do, do i know that it's there well actually i do but but uh, how because of the photographs other people have taken uh, how because we have building records uh, and that's you know, an interesting idea right where do we draw the line between a priori and a posteriori yeah. in that regard because so is a posteriori, right, only in person seeing the Eiffel Tower or is using your visual senses to wa- to watch a video recording or see a picture or that it, sort of, where do you draw the line? It, with it that? can be but well, I think here here's a, another definition. A, a priori is is relating or to or denoting the reasoning of or knowledge, which proceeds from theoretical deduction rather than observation or experience. Okay. Well, so uh, the, the Eiffel Tower thing, that's observation. It's others' observation. It's not my immediate experience. I've had ex- an experience of seeing what others have experienced. And there are enough different uh, pieces of data to make that holy knowledge. So would you say um, knowledge of the Eiffel Tower for an average American, would it be accurate to say that that's a posteriori knowledge today, but it would have been a priori knowledge 200 years ago when there wasn't photographs or videos, that sort of thing? Uh, loosely, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think perhaps. Because at that point, it's, it's theoretical and it's abstract. Like, you have to rely on other people's um, telling you about it. But you've never actually seen it. No, no I'm going to back up. No, it's still a a, a posteriori because you're reasoning from that which has been established. Okay. Okay. So uh, uh, 200 years ago, you don't have photographs, but people have told you of, of whatever it is that the the Acropolis. Or it, it won't stick with the Eiffel Tower, but it it's. It has been standing along with the Colosseum. All right. Postcards were made of it. Even before postcards, people wrote of it back to when it was first built. So that's still um, uh, observations or experiences that deductive reasoning has proceeded from. Some observations have been made. So the kind of observation, the technical support differs Hmm. and, and advances. Man, that raises a whole host of interesting <laughs> questions then because uh, thinking um, sort of, well, let's, let's think cosmologically, right? So what sort of things, 
I mean, we we have um, this knowledge based off of our telescopes looking at the cosmic microwave right. background, these sorts of things about, you know, the, the origins of the universe and, and how things have proceeded. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that would make a lot of that a posteriori knowledge, right? Yeah. So what sort of things would still be a priori knowledge in, in our day and age, do you think? Things that you can't measure. Things that are still, I mean, we, we, I'm being cautious because I'm just sifting really fast. To my knowledge, we haven't seen dark matter yet. It's still theoretical. Theoretical doesn't mean it's weak. It, uh, it, 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 it just means that it's, there are all kinds of good reasons, uh, intellectually to posit that it's there, but we don't have the, we have indirect observation of gravitational anomalies and so on, but we, but we don't have the direct observation. I'm, right. I'm, okay. I think that it would, that works. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and a lot of, all right. Yeah. Sort of abstract theoretical concepts. I mean, we've talked about it the last few weeks in like axiology and stuff, artwork, um, or, um, subjective emotions, these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, if we're talking about knowledge, we're, we are talking about something that's still measurable, but just theoretical or abstract, right? Yeah, mathematically measurable, mm-hmm. but uh, not through the immediacy of the senses. Okay. Um, can you explain the the regress problem for the listeners? In, in, in an epistemological sense. I think which, well, okay, make sure I'm on the same page with you. So, try, find, doing your due diligence on the provenance of the knowledge. What step was taken before? What step was, what step, where does it, where yes. does it originate, yeah. right? Yep. And, and so the, the regress problem is that you, you can perhaps um, hypothetically think your way back to the first, uh, grunting decision made by the uh, neanderthal who the, uh, no the we talked about the neanderthals too the 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 homo sapiens who developed we can't know absolutely who spoke the first word for instance but we know that the first word had to have been spoken because language developed but we we regress back through we can project uh, and some things we can regress back through if it's a, a couple of generations, perhaps, of a problem to the beginning of a technology that we still have evidence of. Is that? Yeah, no, that's that's right on. Um, and so that has a wide range of problems. So I, it's the regress problem for epistemological knowledge, right? Um, I think that the example they used um, on Wikipedia was um, humans, right? So if this person is a human, well, what makes them a human? Well, every person born from uh, a human female is a human. Well, at some point, you have to go back far enough that there was a person that wasn't born from a human female, unless people always existed since the beginning of time. Um, And you can get much more metaphysical with it going all the way up again, Back to cosmology, right? And this is something that people struggle with conceptually when they think about this sort of thing. And it's probably the origins of many religions, right? Yeah. Is this idea 
Um, and I've done a lot of reading on it this week, actually, about the origin of the universe. And mm-hmm. if you go back, um, you keep asking the question and you keep trying to establish what knowledge your current knowledge is built on. And you keep going back and back and back and back. Well, what's it, you know, is there ever a point where you can't go back any farther? <laughs> the regress problem is that idea of yeah, being unable to infinite regression, right? right. It's, uh, and <laughs> it's actually one of Zeno's paradoxes. I think if you take what can I can I cut something in a half and then a quarter and then a, and, you know, right? It's not exactly the same thing, but it, that brought that to mind for me. Uh, it's useful in the sense of trying to establish authority. It's useful in the sense of trying to be accurate. Uh, so we have the the Webb Space Telescope, which is probably going to tell us more about the age and origin of the universe because it's going to be able to see regressively further back in time because of the way that light works. So things that we think we know now inductively will probably change or possibly change. I won't even say probably, although generally the more observation is done, more the more change happens. So that that's a useful I, uh, application of regression, which is right in front of our technical eyes, our technologically enhanced eyes. And and if you want to trace back, I suppose if, if you want to do a sociological thing uh, regressively, and you trace back an idea to where you think it might have begun. And if it began in a really uh, unauthoritative source and some, somehow it's gained all this authority, uh, there's another word for that, <laughs> which is uh, skeptically inquiring <laughs> or, or debunking things. Uh, and I bring, I, so it has some use. It, it has interesting applications. I just said skepticism. Skepticism is really so much part of epistemology. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about it a little bit later. Okay. But I think that we definitely need to do an ep- a whole episode on, on skepticism because um, there's just a lot to talk about there. But yeah, so, um, you know, looking at epistemology, this regress problem or this idea of, um, and this is this is where we get philosophy being different from science in that regard right is that philosophy is gonna go you know science is gonna leave it's gonna wash its hands right it's gonna say hey listen like this is outside of what we can deal with so we're not we're not gonna address it we're just gonna deal with the things that we can experimentally um like we were talking about that golden standard of of being able to isolate variables um this is what we're gonna say that we know this is our standard for knowing Epistemology is, is going a little bit further and saying, well, um, philosophy, it's the job of philosophy to push the boundaries of science in order to sort of, um, you know, we're sort of hacking down the weeds so that science can build a road here eventually, right? So, what's we need to use logic and we need to use observation and we need to, to follow these sorts of things. That's the rationalist strain. But we also need to confront this this glaring problem that if we are saying that we know something now and then we're trying to find out what the foundational knowledge of this is, but the more we look at the foundational knowledge, we get to a point in the past where we can no longer identify what the foundational knowledge is. We need to come up with a solution for that problem. Um, 
do you want to do you want to cover some of the solutions that philosophy has for that? Yeah, and I'll try to avoid skepticism because you want to talk about that later. But uh, it, I'm going to start with what works most for me as an individual thinking human being. It's useful to know the foundations of anything because you can't theorize about your work like teaching without understanding where some of those ideas came. You, you, you can do it, but you're doing it rather randomly and chaotically, haphazardly because you don't follow where things came from. Um, going to another metaphor that we've, we've gone to before, building a house. Well, we know the great teacher once said you don't build a house on sand. Okay, well, that's no fine. But you can build with many kinds of foundations. But if you sort of put part of a foundation in and say, now I'm going to build the wall on that, then I'm going to put some more foundation in, you're probably not going to have a structure that is nearly as well built as it could be. Uh, so for me, it's always or mostly about the idea of establishing the verifiable and probable certitude, not certitude, but, but near certainty that under ordinary conditions that building would stand. But things pop up, things happen that one doesn't expect. And I, and I think that, that epistemology, when you follow the step-by-step, -step, even regressively or forwardly, both directions, you are likely to arrive at things that might be shared with others that would help them when they begin to encounter a problem, which had to be addressed in retroactive fashion in one's own experience. Uh, I have a geotherm system in our house. We put it in last year. We wanted it to be green. I'm glad that we did it. But in the intensive cold, I found that one of the zones is not able to keep up with sub-zero temperatures. And that thus brings down the temperature of the other zones because it's trying to crank so hard to equalize things. Uh, I'm sure they told me, but I don't, don't remember that. They, unlike intuitively when you have zones for different kinds of heating and you can set them to different temperatures, geothermal uh, machinery requires the same zone temperature, all a universal zone temperature. And epistemology is about universal things. <laughs> so so uh, I'm going to have to retroactively go back and make decisions about whether we put in different, you know, and I don't want to get too micro about this, but, but I could tell somebody else, this is something you very much want to be very careful about if you have an old house to have them assess the space and it's a fairly new technology and so they're still inductively working through some of the problems too so that can be it can be useful to somebody it's certainly useful to me because now i've got decisions to make about whether uh, what how one approaches the problem so i have the knowledge so to so to speak, I've had the established facts of the temperatures and the square footage. And so there's more than one way to approach that, space heaters, which chew up energy or, you know, is that addressing? Yeah, so we were talking about um, how how the regress problem is addressed in philosophy. Yes. And um, 
I think that there's there's different ways of doing it, right? I think that there's sort of this this cutoff where a posterior knowledge changes to a priori knowledge. And yeah. so the example that I'm thinking of is um there's a story, you know, a, a myth that um Plato was wanted to know how many teeth a horse had in its mouth, so he he thought about the horse's mouth and and aristotle said well i'm just gonna go count the teeth right (laughs) and so that that sort of demonstrates uh, an a posteriori versus an a priori method of of obtaining knowledge i think where the regress problem gets um you know sticky is when that a posteriori knowledge is no longer um is you can't access it so right so let's say the horse is is behind a a fence that you can't enter you know so the horse is 30 feet away so you can't get to the horse but you can look at it you can still you could probably still arrive at a rough estimate of how many teeth it has if you say okay well its head is this big from this distance so if i do the math then its head is actually this big in real life and you know if i'm assuming that the teeth have this sort of proportion and you know you have this sort of stuff i'm guessing it has this many teeth so yeah. that's sort of an a posteriori knowledge. Is it going to be as, or an a priori knowledge? Is it going to be as accurate as the a posteriori? Um, no, no. no. Um, and that's that's where some of these problems with the regress uh, with the regress problem get interesting. Is you can a lot of our knowledge is if it, it's built off of. Um, something where you don't know the initial conditions that that is exactly it this is why epistemology uh, there are those in epistemology epistemologists who will say that this this you've lived on it uh, that that it, it is not concerned with why people believe that horse has x number of teeth or or um how how they came to believe that in the first place. That's not what epistemology was, is about. It's about finding a particular, not you know, if you know something, are you justified in making a claim? If you think you know something and you make a claim, is it justifiable in the circumstances that you're working on? So would it be justifiable to say a horse has teeth and you're looking at it from 30 feet away? Probably. Would it be justifiable to say, well, I can extrapolate from other head sizes and so on? Yes, knowing, as you just said, that it's not going to be 100% reliable. But you, you, come, to a, you come to levels of, of justification uh, of, of, of the strength of a claim. So the claim has to be adjusted to what you have to work with. Right, right. And that's the fundamental difference between science and philosophy, right? Is you you can't you can't design an experimental condition, um, yes. but using logic and using some of your other tools in your in your toolbox, you can you can come to some type of knowledge rather than just saying, "Well, that horse has thirty two teeth because I have thirty two teeth." Right? <laughs> You're not saying that. You're saying, "Okay, well, I'm making observations. I'm doing some some work here." to try to come to an answer that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And um and this is this is still happening today oh, yeah. in, in oh, a yeah. lot of different areas. Cos- cosmology is my favorite one. Um you know Roger Penrose mm-hmm. um and his idea of a of a cyclical universe, you know, and how the mathematics fits. Th- that one's fascinating to me because mathematically 
um, a very hot, dense universe and a very diffuse, cold universe have the same mathematical properties. So in Penrose's theory, what will happen is, as dark energy continues to spread everything out from each other, and you know stars can no, you know stars run out of fuel and nothing can can gravitationally hold together in order to create any new fusion, right? Everything turns black, and then black holes eat everything up, and then black holes evaporate, and eventually you have nothing really except a diffuse energy throughout the universe. But paradoxically. That's the exact same state as the Big Bang, this hot, this hot, dense universe. And so his theory is that as the universe continues to expand and get colder, eventually time and space and perspective itself disappears. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you're zooming out, right? You're zooming out on this universe getting bigger and colder and farther away. But then eventually, all of a sudden, You've zoomed out far enough that it's a tiny hot speck again and it starts over, right? Yeah. And mathematically, this works, right? It's fascinating. Isn't yeah. It? And um, but there's other explanations as well. There's the I think it's the the waveform function of the universe, which is um quantum mechanic that says um essentially everything is just a wave function, right? And so when you get these spooky actions at a distance, these quantumly entangled things. Basically, what it's saying is just the whole universe is just a wave, right? And the whole thing is just one wave. We're a wave. Everything is just this wave, wave, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this underlying thing, and these the probabilities are what cause these various events to happen. (laughs) So, so this is all a priori knowledge, right? There's no we can't design an experiment to prove it. We can't use our senses to observe it, but mathematically logically we can describe it right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's multiple explanations right and so the difficult part of philosophy is is saying the difficult part of being a human is saying i don't know and i'm never gonna know but the fun part of it is looking at all of these possibilities and thinking you know what they could it could this could be something that actually happened you know it's the there's the humility we always come back to this any one of us has has moments of arrogance highly wrecked emotionality which which defies reason and humility sometimes but to be able to say why do I think that I know what is my justification for this? That's really where you work out from. That's where you can regressively go backward. And where did you hear it? Where did you hear it? Or, or, and, and then you can say, oh, wait a minute. Let's take something a lot of people say, at least around of where we live. I, I've, I grew up with this. It's, I still hear it day after day, almost literally day after day. Um, bad things always happen in threes. Mm. You've heard this. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. And I remember going back decades asking this question of people and never getting a particularly satisfying answer. Bad things always happen in threes. So what? <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's suppose they do. Is that going to give you an opportunity to discern from the first two things that happened what the third one is? Because usually when people lose their string, this person died, this this terrible thing happened to my car. So something else is going to happen. Oh, good. So you're going to sit and and and, and twiddle your thumbs and shiver from sh- sheer trepidation. That's, I just know something's going to happen. Well, Chicken Little knew the sky was going to fall too, and you know. So so it's not useful. What good is it to say things happen? Is it to verify that? Gee, we know this because my grandmother told me this. Because her grandmother told me this, and therefore, it must be so. Right. And what? What reliable measurement are we using to track this? What what period of time has to elapse? Um, what what magnitude of bad do we have to have to consider? And, and does it have to event? be any magnitude? Can it be any magnitude at all? Right. Oh, I cut my finger. Somebody died, and the car blew up. Right. Um. Yeah. <laughs> and what other other things might have happened that were also descriptively bad? Sort of go. No, those right. three we focus on. <laughs> so this kind of leads us into. Um, into the question, um, can skepticism ever be truly dismissed? I don't think it can be, and I don't think it should be. I think that's what my education has taught me in, in philosophy and humanities in, in general. It, the pre-Socratics weren't skepticism wasn't really an issue uh, and and i bring them up because i you know i was thinking about this i scribbled a note about this getting ready for today let's see if i can find it but uh heraclitus okay we talk about the river and all mm, the, the yeah, river, yeah. River, right? um we don't doubt they they the use of the Parmenides used the sense, uh, uh, said we have reason, and Heraclitus said we use our senses. Uh, but they didn't doubt that knowledge of reality was possible. Mm-hmm. That's really the crux. They, at way back, they thought, yeah, we can figure reality out. And and if we and if we fast forward somewhat into the the fifth century BC, we have the sophists who we've talked about mm-hmm. this who who questioned nature's objectivity, who questioned therefore the objectivity of knowledge to some extent, and and Protagoras who said uh, man is the measure of all things, so uh, appearances are the only reality, and we have since learned. So we have all of these things. Skepticism leads to epistemology you need skepticism in order to have epistemology and and the job of of warranting and and making uh balancing out the claims you're making and and how those are supported with what you find that's that's a constant challenge that skepticism brings if somebody says i challenge that Fine, science says bring it on, and let, and we'll show you all the evidence. Where where we have fallen apart egregiously in in our own culture in this time in which we're doing these podcasts is is to me uh, speaking as one person, I'm speaking for you, is is that skepticism has come to mean having an alternative, ultimate truth that can't be defined. Uh, 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 modified, uh, uh, broken down, or 
educated because it just is so, because I want it to be so, and therefore it's so. And, and no amount of rationality can assail that or 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 teach it out of itself. Yeah, much like the state of a, a cold, diffuse universe being the same as a state of a yes, hot, dense universe, yes. being skeptical, being the ultimate skeptic, essentially is the same state as being somebody who considers all knowledge to be concrete right like the two polar opposites actually form a circle right there's this this they connect yeah and that's that's why are you skeptical thing. about this okay i accept your skepticism give me a reason why you're skeptical about it i can in some way address that if you won't consider how it's being addressed then you don't really want to have your skepticism lead to anything hmm. but under certainty. And and epistemology is not about certainty. <laughs> and and philosophy is not about certainty. Thinking is not about certainty for the most part. And so what are you going to do with it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really satisfied with the way you answered that question because I, every once in a while I set you up. I'll, I'll word a question in such a way that I, I'm leading you one direction. And every single time you get it right, you always go the other direction. One of these times you're going to have a bad day and you're going to be real mad at me. When, Man, but, one of I'm going to what? <laughs> no, but that's that was a great answer because, yes, yeah, skepticism, you know, we can word it as being a bad thing. Um, but skepticism is is really it's it's a high trait to have true skepticism mm -hmm. which is that that state of of questioning um you know what what do we know and where did this knowledge come from mm -hmm. um but like you said in in our our um societal dealings lots of times we come across sort of false skepticism which is this something that that parades as being questioning um, but really, it's it's sort of a false guise for um, an already established position on something. Right. Somebody says they can't wear, they cannot communicate with a mask. I've encountered that this week. Tears the mask off. I can't talk in this thing. And my, I've told you before the recording. My thought was, well, then I hope you're not a doctor, an EMT, a firefighter. A radiologist, a, a you know, they, they, because all of them seem to be able to communicate with various kinds of masks and tools. So what you're really saying is, I don't wanna, right? You, and and so you assert a falsehood, which is that you can't talk or you can't communicate, which is clearly falsifiable by a demonstrable moment to moment with millions of people. <laughs> Including choirs who sing intelligible verse. So, so I, I think that that's where skepticism, as you just said, when skepticism is false, when the skepticism is not skepticism, but, but a cloak for wanting to be utterly certain that you're right because you are, that's dangerous. Yeah, so we've gotten to an interesting sort of paradox here, right? Where, um, like I said earlier in the episode, um, Science never proves anything, right? It can disprove some things, but it can't prove anything. And um, you mentioned how um, a lot of these things, in epistemology things, they're, it's not about knowing, right? 
but but that's what's sort of what it is. So yeah. so we've reached this strange paradox. <laughs> so what what are the big questions in epistemology facing us? Are they the same as the ones in the past, or where, what sort of progress are we making in this this pursuit of knowledge? I think I was listing up some some questions. Um, well, go back to what we said before. What is what is the rational basis for regarding a principle or a standard or an idea proper? What has led there's the regressive to to that? That's that's one of the questions. I oh my gosh, there's how does one define proper? How does one define reliable? How does one define factuality? How I'm just rattling the questions. Those are all built in to the relationship between skepticism and epistemology because we 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 accept that while we have come to a certain position now new information inductively may cause us to alter the course and so epistemology of uh, well well applied as a as a living process can lead one to be more amenable to change <laughs> Well, you might think, well, wait a minute, it's about establishing facts. Yes, but not for all eternity. It's about establishing universal facts. Yes, as best as we can know them at that moment. Right. <laughs> so there's always the qualified. Yeah. And so that that's a perfect um, description of the marriage between skepticism and epistemology. Right. And it doesn't change that that there is a paradox. Right. No. Epistemology is, is this um, philosophical notion of, of establishing knowledge. Um, but built into establishing knowledge is this, um, you know, this characteristic of, of skepticism, which is, which is questioning. Without what is knowledge, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Without the questioning, you can't actually come to to know anything. Plato, Plato, it goes back to him again. Uh, whatever we may think about, we think we know about him as a person. What is knowledge? Where is knowledge found? How much of what we think we know is really knowledge? Do senses supply knowledge? Can reason supply knowledge? What is the relation between knowledge and true belief? These are the questions that Plato was asking. <laughs> and, and, and we still are wrestling with every one of those we did today. Yeah. Yeah, so it's been a good episode. I we didn't we didn't head uh, where I expected at all. I have a bunch of questions that I didn't ask, and a bunch of questions that I did ask that weren't on the paper. Um, <laughs> but I, I liked it because it was, um, you know, a more a little bit more of an, an academic discussion than we than we normally have. And I hope I don't think that it would turn anybody off. I, um, I think that I'm hoping that people found it pretty interesting and to kind of see. Um, some are sort of the more formal and structural elements of of philosophy and how it's conceived, um, as opposed to just hearing us talk and thinking, well, these just two guys, you know, saying whatever they think is is coming to their mind, that sort of thing. But, um, so yeah, we'll we'll continue, uh, you know, and the fact that we we didn't go through everything, um, and the fact that um, skepticism is is a huge topic on its own means we'll definitely be revisiting this in the future probably the near future um but until next time keep on